You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the ever merciful. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Today is Friday, the 22nd of December 2023. The time is 4 or 3 p.m. And you're listening to Daniel Zia, Imam. Raza Ahmed and and um, my brother Kayum, who will be joining us shortly as well. This afternoon, we're talking about the legacy of Dr. Abdul Salam. We're going to be talking about the man who Dr. Abdul Salam really was. There have been a lot of programs, um, a lot, some uh, movies done on him as well. But we wanted to look at his <coughs> his his legacy. What his legacy really is and we also wanted to shed light on the man himself so the next two hours are going to be about dr abdul salam what he was what his legacy um is and uh, what did he really bequeath to the uh, posterity so abdul salam uh, was born in 1926 he was a pakistani theoretical physicist he shared the 1979 Nobel Prize in Physics with Glasgow, Steven Weinberg for their contribution to the electroweak unification theory. He was the first Pakistani and the first Muslim from an Islamic country to receive a Nobel Prize in science. But as I mentioned earlier, there is so much more to him than that. And today we will delve deeper than has been attempted previously to discover what his legacy really is. So, Mam Reza, I, <clears throat> uh, uh, to prepare for this, I've spoken to numerous people. I've done a few interviews as well. Mm. And um, uh, in all of those interviews, uh, you know, two things really, you know, very starkly uh, came out for me, um, almost jumped at me. One was that one of his greatest legacies is really the institutions he set up. Yeah. And one of that those institutions is the International Center for Theoretical Physics, uh, Physics in Trieste in Italy. Um, and that institution um, is a marvelous institution. We'll be speaking um, later on uh, with the director, Dr. Atish Dabolkar, who heads up the ICTP as well. But um, just to give uh, some sense of the contribution of that one institution to the world, that institution, 200,000 scientists have have been trained in that particular institution in the last 59 years of its existence. Um, and most of them actually came from the from the global south or uh, the third world, as we um, used to say. So, um, you know, that particular one institution, and there's so many others which we will uh, delve deeper into. Uh, into as well. He set, set up many scholarships uh, as well to help uh, those who were aspiring but couldn't afford to progress in science. And the other thing that, um, as I was doing research on him, which really stood out at me was um, his devotion to Islam mm. and um, the importance he gave to reflect on the Word of God, which is um, the Holy Quran. So, you know, these two things. And, and yeah, one more thing, you know, very important about ICTP, the International Center for Theoretical F Physics. Just to understand how big an achievement that was and how, how much it mattered to Dr. Salam to give back and to give back to the world, really, especially people and scientists, budding scientists, 
and those with the love of science in the developing world that he thought of setting up ICTP at the age of 38. He was born in 26, 1926, and ICTP was up and running in 1964. So 60 years running. Almost 60 years running. Yeah. But he you know, thought of it as in, in probably his mid-30s. Yeah. That's when yeah. not a lot of people, um, especially a lot of people who, who were very scientifically minded as well. Mm. So, you know, he was doing his science. But then, you know, this, this shows the passion he had to give back. Indeed. So, um, so I just thought that I'd, um, I'd um, highlight that. So let's start at the very beginning. I mean, um, what uh, you've just mentioned that these are his, this is his legacy that he left behind, uh, and also the Nobel Prize. Where I'm sure we're going to get into that in a little bit more detail after uh, some time. But let let's start at the very beginning. What was his background? Where did he come from? Because most of the time, people then usually think that if he achieved some of that. Um, what he did achieve, he must have had, uh, you know, proper upbringing. He must have been born with a silver spoon, but uh, that was not the case. So he came from a very, very humble background. His uh, he very early established a reputation throughout the Punjab, which is in India, for outstanding brilliance and academic achievement. At the age of fifteen, uh, fourteen. Dr. Salam, he scored the highest marks ever recorded for the entrance examination at the Punjab University. He then won a full scholarship to the Government College University of Lahore. And he was a very versatile scholar, interested in Urdu, interested in English literature, in which he excelled. However, he soon picked up mathematics as a subject of interest. His mentors and tutors, they wanted him to become an English teacher, but he decided to stick with maths. His father wanted him to join the Indian Civil Service. And in those days, the ICS was the highest aspiration for young university graduates and civil servants occupied a respected place in civil society. Now, respecting his father's wish, he tried for the Indian railways but did not qualify for the service as he failed the medical optical test. He then went on to attend the Graduate School of Government College University he received his MA in mathematics from the Government College University in 1946. That same year, he was awarded a scholarship to St. John's College here in the UK in Cambridge, where he completed a BA degrees with double first-class honours in mathematics and physics. Four years later, in 1950, he received the Smiths Prize from the Cambridge University for the most outstanding pre-doctoral contributions to physics. He also obtained a PhD degree in theoretical physics from the Cavendish Labor Laboratory at Cambridge. His uh, doctoral thesis titled Developments in Quantum Theory of Fields contained comprehensive and fundamental work in quantum electrodynamics. By the time it was published a year later in 1951, it had already gained him an international reputation and the Adams Prize. So we're, as we go along... You will see, I mean, I've spoken to some people as well. I've spoken to his son. I've spoken to people who work with him. The list just goes on and on and on. I mean, the amount of prizes, the amount of achievements that he had is just incredible. It so is. during his doctoral studies, his mentors challenged him to solve within one year an intractable problem which had defied such great minds as Paul Derek or Richard Feynman. And within six months, 
Salam had found a solution for the renormalization of the Mason theory. As he proposed the solution at the Cavendish Laboratory, Salam had attracted the attention of the likes of Hans Bethe and uh, as well as Robert Oppenheimer. Yes, absolutely. Um, moving <clears throat> on to his Nobel Prize achievement. So there are four fundamental forces of nature. Um, the gravitational force, the strong and weak nuclear forces, and the electromagnetic force. Salam had worked on the unification of these forces from 1959 with Glasgow and Weinberg. While at Imperial College London, Salam successfully showed that weak nuclear forces are not really different from electromagnetic forces and the two could actually interconvert. Salam provided a theory that shows the unification of these two fundamental forces of nature, that is weak nuclear forces and the electromagnetic forces, one into another. In 1967, Salam was able to prove the electroweak unification theory mathematically and published the papers. For this achievement, Salam, Glasshow, and Weinberg were awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1979. So I've mentioned that he also, after his initial uh, education in, in, in Pakistan, or actually in India at that time, he also joined the Imperial College in London in 1957. And during his time here, he set up the theoretical physics group with the late Professor Paul Matthews. And we have spoken to Professor Ian Alexander Walmsley, who is the provost of the Imperial College London and the chair of experimental physics. He was previously the pro-vice-chancellor for research and Hook Professor of Experimental Physics at the University of Oxford. We spoke to him about Professor Abdusalam, asked him a few questions, and uh, I think this uh, is going to be what he said about uh, his time, his uh, experience with Professor Salam. Good morning, sir. Thank you very, very much for joining us. Really appreciate your time today. Um, we are, or we want to talk about uh, Dr. Salam. Um, let me start by asking you, uh, what contribution did Dr. Abdul Salam make to Imperial College London? It's great to have the opportunity to speak about uh, Professor Salam's uh, work and his time here at Imperial, so th thank you for that. He was a professor in the physics department for many years, and he set up the theoretical physics group here, which continues to thrive uh, today. So he really laid the foundations for some of the most far-reaching science uh, that's been going on at the college for many years. Right. Okay. Um, in terms of um, his contribution to to scientific work, how significant do you think um, his um, uh, his theory of unification was? He made his work was hugely significant in in science. He was one of a small number three people who showed how to unify two of the fundamental forces of physics. So therefore bringing together in a sort of coherent framework, uh, our understanding of how how forces in, in emerge in in physics. Uh, and that's really the basis of uh, much of particle physics and fundamental physics today is is the work that he and his colleagues uh, did largely here. Uh, it's it's a very significant contribution to science. What uh, stands out to you 
personally about Dr. Salah. I knew him only peripherally in the sense that I was a first year student uh, when he won his Nobel Prize here. Uh, so, of course, to me, he was a sort of superstar luminary, but it was one of the things that had attracted me to come to a place like Imperial, where you could interact with and hear from people of his caliber. And I, I do remember that he gave an introductory talk to us freshers at the time, and uh, it, it was tr truly sort of an inspiring view of what science could be and the particular uh, ways in which physics gave one insight into the world. So, uh, so I, I was, I found him very inspiring and and a very approachable man. He was open to questions, even from people as uh, as of uh, uh, at the first stage of their academic career. So, so that combination of a really intense intellect, outstanding contribution to science, and uh, approachability and relatability was uh, uh, just a truly inspiring combination. He was primarily a scientist, but he also set up an institution called the ICTP in Trieste. Um, how, number one, how significant an achievement do you think that was or is? And uh, how easy or difficult do you think uh, it would have been as a scientist to have set an institution from the ground up and then management of that institution because that requires a very different skill set than science. Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, well uh, let me speak to really to his vision in doing that. Um, it, the International Center for Theoretical Physics in, in Trieste has been a really important means by which uh, people from the global south in particular could uh, could access training and skills and uh, in science and become themselves leaders in in their areas. Uh, I think that vision is hugely important, and he was clearly a tireless advocate for improving access to high level education and research skills development. Uh, for everybody across the world. I, I think that's a very powerful and important vision. And he clearly was very committed to it in order to um, in order to drive that forward, find the funding for it, get it set up and get it uh, and get it running. And it, as you rightly pointed out, it's still going today um, and therefore therefore what's that from 64 to 24, uh, 50 years, 60 years now. A really, uh, a really powerful legacy. So uh, I think that's something again that we can really admire him for. W would you say that that was also one of his key legacies in in addition to the scientific work that he did? Oh, uh, absolutely, yes. Uh, you know, he was uh, he was a brilliant scientist. He was an advocate for uh, for developing science as a as a global means for knowledge accessible to everybody. You know, he was an advisor to the government of Pakistan. You know, he was really a citizen of the world based on his his uh, his vision and his capabilities in science. And finally. Um... Professor, how is he remembered today at Imperial? Mm. Uh, well, he, he, his, his scientific legacy is very clear. Uh, and we have been working recently to really 
make sure that he is better known to our students and to our community. Um, that's included a new portrait of him and indeed the recent naming of our library after him. Uh, we, we, have, we think that the naming of the library really speaks to his, his commitment to education um, and it therefore really fits with what we're, we're trying to do as, a, as an academic institution and gives us a, a, a right way to celebrate his contributions as a member of our community as well. So uh, I, I hope that that um, gives, a, gives a prominence that really reflects uh, his stature in the college. Excellent. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Romsdale. Really, really a pleasure to, to speak to you. Thank you for your time. So that was uh, Professor Ian Alexander Wormsley, who is the Provost of Imperial College London and the Chair of Experimental Physics. And he was um, uh, talking to us earlier about uh, the contribution that uh, Dr. Salam made both to Imperial College and to the science in um, scientific world in general. But just to um, give... Um, uh, an idea of uh, what his scientific achievements really were. And Imam Reza, you talked about a moment ago how, uh, you know, how many awards he won. Mm. And I think uh, uh, this list that I'm about to read out will give our listeners some idea as to why he won um, so many awards and, and what really the man, uh, how special mm. a mind he was. So his notable scientific achievements include the following, uh, the Patti-Salam model, the magnetic photon vector Mason grand unification theory, work on supersymmetry, electroweak theory, for which he was awarded the Nobel Prize. And he also made a major contribution in quantum field theory and in the advancement of mathematics at Imperial College London, with the student Riazuddin Salam made important contributions to the modern theory on neutrinos, neutron stars and black holes, as well as work on modernizing quantum mechanics. So that's just... Just to name a few. <laughs> just to name a few of his uh, really, really scientific achievements. And, you know, in terms of the institutions he, that he set up, um, we will, um, uh, as we mentioned earlier, we will continue to talk about during uh, the program. And now let's go to one of that, those institutions, which is the International Center for Theoretical Physics, or ICTP, or Abdus Salam International Center for Theoretical Physics, as it has now been renamed in Trieste in Italy. So... Um, just to, uh, again, build some context of um, around it, I was speaking to um, a, a physicist, um, a professor of physics uh, in Pakistan who was able to work with Dr. Salam as well, uh, Dr. Pervez Hoodboy. And um, he mentioned to me that according to him, so I've asked him that question that, you know, how significant was um, was this achievement of setting up something from the ground up, mm. a new institution, and also mm. at such a young mm. age. And he said to me, um, and you'll probably hear that in his interview later on as well, that to his mind, Salam should have won two Nobel Prizes. Okay. One for the science and one for just setting up this institution, which, as I mentioned earlier, has helped 200,000 scientists mm. so far globally. So, uh, you know, that shows the... Um, uh, shows one side of this very multifaceted uh, and dynamic personality. 
He bitterly regretted the fact that he was unable to pursue his chosen career of research in his native country and resolved to try to help others who found themselves in a similar position. He single-handedly managed to persuade key stakeholders to support the idea of setting up an international center for theoretical physics, where scientists from the developing countries would be able to come on a regular basis to interact with leaders in the field while continuing to work in their home countries. He received strong support for the idea, setting it up in Trieste from the Italian government, as well as the Trieste city authorities. So can I ask, why, why was that not then chosen in his home country? What was the reason for that? I, I think he did try that. Uh, unfortunately, because of um, uh, the NTM, the legislation in Pakistan, mm. and because of the religious bias, uh, that very unfortunately carries to this day. He um, uh, he was not given permission. Mm-hmm. He was not allowed to set something up um, in Pakistan. And I think in hindsight, that has, you know, it's, it's probably... Uh, better that it's in a central location like Trieste because now not only Pakistani scientists but yeah. scientists from all over the world from all over uh, you know uh, the global south as they say the developing world are able to come and work with top-notch scientists mm. uh, on scholarships so it's, all, it's a fully funded thing you you know they, they're called up in Trieste they're put up in nice accommodation mm. and they're able to rub shoulders with the best in the business and um, and learn from them, and then go back in their countries and contribute. So so that unfortunately was, um, uh, but he, that didn't stop him from setting up a number of other institutions in Pakistan, mm. which we shall come to later in the program as well. But um, just to highlight also, ICTP is actually the only institution of this kind in the world that explores fundamental scientific questions at the highest level promotes active engagement with scientists from the global south and advances international cooperation with first world scientists. It is governed by IAEA, Italy and UNESCO and is a UNESCO Category 1 institute. Um, I spoke earlier with the current head of the ICTP, the sitting director of um, ICTP or Abdul Salam Center for um, Theoretical Physics as it is now known. Uh, Dr. Atish Tabholkar. Let's listen into what he had to say. Dr. Tabholkar, thank you very, very much for joining us today. Really a pleasure to have you. If I can just start by asking you um, about um, ICTP's foundational pillars, uh, which one of which is world-class research. So, how has ICTP, how successful has ICTP been over the last 50 years or so of its existence in meeting that ambition and that foundational pillar? Uh, thank you for, uh, first of all, inviting me for this uh, interview. So certainly ICTP is, uh, it's really critical for ICTP's mission that uh, ICTP excels in the science that we do. Uh, otherwise, the other parts of our mission do not make sense. And uh, this we have been successfully able to do for the past 60 years. Uh, many of the many of uh, many of my colleagues and their work uh, in the uh, past so many years has led to several important breakthroughs in various fields, including it has contributed to something like five Nobel Prizes, including the one of Salam himself, 
but also subsequently the works uh, in unification on neutrino, for example, the well-known MSW effect named after uh, one of them is uh, Smirnov, who was a faculty at ICTP. That is the theoretical basis of the experimental Nobel Prize, which was given for the uh, discovery of uh, neutrino oscillations. So then also in climate science and so on. So I think uh, ICTP is, for an institution of this size, I think I would say that our uh, level of accomplishment is quite high. Would you say that ICTP is a unique institution of its kind in the world? I would really say that because there are many institutions focused on scientific excellence. For example, you could take the example of Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. Uh, what distinguishes ICTP is that it's a dual mission. In fact, it has three aspects to our mission. One is excellence, but other very fundamentally is inclusion. Uh, and inclusion really means overcoming the you know, the obstacles of not only of gender and ethnicity, which is how it is understood, let's say in many of the universities in the developing world, but also of geography and economics, because uh, I can, and as you might know this, coming from a developing country, oftentimes geography is a much more often hurdle or economics than even gender and ethnicity. And this was one of the founding principles of ICTP is to really make science available to in all corners of the world you know, so that the next Ramanujan, you know, for example, you know, this famous story of Ramanujan, how he was, he went to Cambridge and his sort of his genius was discovered. But we would like that it should not be a rare occasion, but really the people people, young people with talent, uh, have the opportunity to interact with the best minds in the in their field. And they do not feel the intellectual isolation. And uh, that's the second part of our mission. And being a UN organization, because we are governed by a tripartite agreement between the government of Italy, International Atomic Energy Agency and UNESCO. And we are a category one center of UNESCO. This allows us to have a kind of a, uh, ICTP has this convening power to really bring together scientists from uh, across the borders, even across political differences, and to make it possible to have a dialogue on issues related to science and also sometimes extending beyond it. So how successful has ICTP been then in bridging this knowledge divide between the third world and the first world. Yeah, so as you know, we no longer use the word the third world and the first world. So let's say developing countries. Uh, I would say that the need is enormous. So I, when I became the director, I asked myself this question that uh, things uh, in the 60s had a certain uh, rationale when ICTP was founded. Does ICTP's mission remain valid even today? And after some soul searching, I came to the conclusion that uh, it's in fact perhaps even more important today than it was in the 60s. If you look look at uh, how uh, the world is getting divided for, you know, it's actually 
as we speak, you know, there are wars going on around the world, uh, and uh, it's making it difficult for also, I mean, of course, for citizens. Many people are suffering enormously under this, but also making it impossible for science to be practiced in many parts of the world or to have a, a free exchange of scientific ideas because of sometimes ideological barriers or sometimes political barriers like a war going on. And ICTP sort of believes in science as a vehicle to promote uh, international understanding. So I think the, on these two fronts, in uh, advanced training and making high-level science available to a broader community, I would say ICTP has had something like 200,000 scientists over the past, for more than half a century now. We will be celebrating our 60th anniversary next year. Yeah. So during this period, 200,000 scientists from more than 100, and, I mean, basically from every nation you can think of, 188 countries have been to ICTP. Two thirds of them have been from developing countries and about a third are women. And uh, all the people coming from the developing countries are fully funded by ICTP. So this uh, tells you the scope of ICTP's delivery of, its, of our mission. In addition, ICTP has contributed a lot to also international cooperation. You may know about the Sesame project in Jordan. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a synchrotron facility yeah. jointly run by countries in the region who are currently at war with each other. But the scientific community was able to come together and to propose. And some of these discussions and many of the initial meetings uh, were basically uh, stimulated by ICTP, were funded by ICTP. ICTP continues to be involved in the Sesame project. So this is really a shining example. <laughs> It's almost, it provides an alternative vision where uh, it is possible to have peaceful coexistence mm. and collaboration. And this is a third aspect of ICTP's mission. And I would say that on all these three fronts, you know, excellence, inclusion, and cooperation, ICTP has, I would say, more than delivered. So where does ICTP get it uh, get most uh, of its funding from, and uh, how committed do you think the donors are to continue to fund ICTP? So I have to say that uh, I'm extremely grateful to all our three stakeholders: uh, the government of Italy, IAEA, and UNESCO. And government of Italy is the largest donor; they are the host country. They contribute almost 90% of our budget. And I'm very, really grateful and I have been really impressed by the appreciation for the mission of ICTP, uh, really at the highest level of governments in Italy, you know, including all the way to the president. So it has really been an unwavering support. I think our funding has been really been uh, supported. Just recently we got additional funding for the renovation of the campus. And we were founded together with the, uh, you know, in the con in the framework of the International Atomic Energy Agency. So they were our founding partners. 
and UNESCO uh, took over the administration in 1996. So these two other partners also continue to contribute uh, both financially as well as in terms of providing the UN structure. And uh, so I would say that we have been stable, but after my, once I, I am, I, if, ICDP has actually great potential to even do even better and to grow even more. And that requires additional funds. So one of the things that I have started at ICTP is really a strong effort for raising funds from elsewhere, including from private donors. And I'm very happy to report that I was recently in the, in the US at two very high profile meetings in New York and in Princeton. And I was surprised by the, I mean, I was not surprised, but I was kind of pleasantly surprised, I would say, that there is a tremendous goodwill for ICTP. And really at the highest level, this meeting was attended by really some of the best minds in science, as well as many wealthy donors who identify with ICTP's mission. Uh, also people from the international community. And we are beginning to see now new sources of funding for ICTP in quite substantial amounts. So I'm quite optimistic that if this trend continues, ICTP has every potential to not only continue its mission, but really grow. I think that uh, speaks of the success of uh, the center itself. If, if more donors want to donate, <laughs> Uh, and I think, yeah, absolutely. You mentioned four other Nobel Prize winners other than Dr. Salam. So that in itself is, a, I think, is a, is a huge achievement. Yeah, no I, no, I should clarify, not four Nobel Prize winners, but the work done was contributed to those Nobel I, Prizes. So, yeah. Sure, of course. Um, are you still involved in scientific research? And um, I was going through your social media a little bit. You still give lectures and... Um, uh, you're still involved in academia a little bit. Uh, how do you juggle between management of uh, of a center, which is really a managerial job, uh, and a sci your scientific work and your scientific hat, so to say? Yeah, no, no, I think I have been managing it well, I would say. In fact, it's fundamental. So I would say it's not just a little bit of science, but I think I'm doing quite, uh, I'm writing uh, good papers. I'm going to conferences. I have nice collaborations, very good young researchers working with me, postdocs and students. So I think it's really important for ICTP director to be really active in science. It cannot be, it's not intended as a, a bureaucratic position or as a managerial position. It has a managerial component but it is intended for to be ICTP to, to have a vision for high level science. It's important that the leadership of ICTP is doing high level science. And uh, yeah, so I have been, uh, Salam, I try to follow Salam's advice to some extent. Of course, the times are different, but uh, Salam's advice was to keep the morning free for, uh, physics. So normally I would not have taken your call. In fact, normally I try to keep it up to 1130. I don't uh, entertain <laughs> anything outside of physics. But okay, since we had so much difficulty uh, finding a good spot. Uh, so I think it's quite usually it's quite enough. I mean, it's more you can, if you have really 
three hours of uninterrupted time in the morning uh, is actually, uh, I don't think it's, uh, yes. so I think continuing research is, I, I regard it as important component of my uh, role. It's not only, yeah, I would certainly not take up a position which required, fortunately, ICDP is not like a huge university where it requires uh, 24 hour, I mean, it's a, it's a very important institute with a large impact and, you know, lots of scientists coming in. So it has a slightly different way of operating, but with uh, some efficient time management, you can do both. Well, I guess, yeah. And the reason I, I would, I should add that, like Salam, and I come from India, he, he was from Pakistan. I, I was really very keen to return to India. I also grew up in a small village in India. Of course, when I returned to India, the situation in India was very different from when Salam returned to Pakistan. I mean, India had some of the top institutions, scientific institutions in the world. So it was not like I was going back to government college in Lahore, uh, where Salam had to become a football coach or something like that to get promotion. <laughs> uh, but uh, it was really it's close to my heart. I mean, this idea that scientists have to give back to their uh, to the society, to society that they come from, especially those who have been privileged enough to benefit from uh, this high science uh, and having seen sort of the cross-section of the society, I really regard this as my obligation to contribute. And which is because of that, I'm more than happy to take up uh, responsibilities that I would otherwise not, uh, uh, you know, I don't mind spending therefore time for the development of ICTP. So good to hear that, uh, Doctor. Um, were you able to interact with uh, Dr. Salam at all? Yeah, I met him. Uh, he was, I, I, I visited ICTP for the first time, I think when I was, I had just graduated from Princeton, I think when I was a student. And I, I visited for a conference. I had a chance to meet with him. But he was already, uh, I mean, he is, of course, was a bit out of science by that time. He was, and he was not also in the greatest of health. So, but just uh, as an, I mean, he has been an inspiration, not only for science, but also for uh, his particular mission. So for me, it was a very nice experience to meet him even if briefly. Uh, but I, I didn't have really scientific exchanges with him. Um, I want to go back to this uh, theme of uh, you know juggling between science and um, and management. Um, you mentioned that there's the, the management is just one component of the work that um, you have to do as director. Um, how challenging or not do you think it would have been for Dr. Salam to as a scientist? <laughs> to have set up something like ICTP from the ground up, uh, arrange funding, uh, align people, align different stakeholders, um, and, and achieve something like this? I mean, in today or at his time? At, at his time. No, it was quite challenging. I mean, I think uh, one must remember that, and this is actually what I realized when I read a bit about the history, you see, 
Salam was uh, well regarded as a scientist, but uh, when he started this, but he started to think about this, I think, in late 30s, when he, in his late 30s, early 40s. I mean, so he was not, he didn't have a Nobel Prize, or it was not even on the horizon. It was not like he said, okay, now that I have a Nobel Prize, let me uh, do, see, he did it in the middle of his career. And uh, so he must have, he really must have felt that passion uh, from the beginning. It was not uh, an afterthought. And uh, it was quite difficult. He was very fortunate that he had a very able partner in Budinich, who was an Italian physicist, but who, I think without him, Salam would not have succeeded. I mean, it really was a partnership. Uh, because he was, uh, he knew the Italian system very well. He was able to, so th this combination of Salam and Budinich was very critical for the success of ICTP. And uh, also those were the times after the war, there was great optimism, I mean, some optimism. And generally nuclear energy and these kinds of particle physics was really uh, many uh, uh, governments were willing to make investments in that. Actually, if you try to do something similar, so and that's why I feel that ICTP is a very unique treasure and we should do everything to really preserve it. Because actually Salam later in his life, I read that he was quite uh, pessimistic, that he said that if I tried to do something like this in the 80s, I don't think I would succeed. And I think he's right about that. I think he would not have succeeded. He would not succeed today so easily. Maybe in a different form, maybe we will need uh, funding from uh, some private donors, then you might succeed. But getting this kind of uh, support from UN agencies, from the government, getting all this was, it's a kind of a very wonderful and happy uh, accident that has happened and we should therefore preserve it because to put it together again see building a great scientific institution takes uh, decades you can destroy it with some foolish bureaucratic decisions you can destroy it in five years and uh, then it is impossible to rebuild it so I think it's very important that we uh, not only make ICTP continue the way it is and that's why I feel, I myself feel sufficiently passionately involved that I would, it's not just to run the institute. I would really like to see that ICTP. And I see indications that ICTP is really, we have had some quite good successes recently. Uh, I don't want to go into the details, but I think I would say that ICTP is really ready to go to the next level. And that's what I, that what I feel is worth aspiring for and worth spending efforts on. So do you think then that uh, giving back to the community this exactly what you said uh, about yourself earlier on was something important for, for Salam as well for him to, to have thought of this idea in his late 30s, early 40s when you know, uh, he didn't even have a Nobel Prize or, or, or that sort of fame at that time? Yes, evidently, because I think he he was, as I understand, I don't know the history completely, but he was quite torn between. And I can quite identify with that. I mean, I spent a lot of time in the U.S. I, you know, I was a student and I worked at, at, 
a number of prestigious in institutions. But I was quite decided that I want to go back to India. And uh, so this uh, pull that you have on emotional pull that you have of returning to your home country, I think was quite strong for Salam too. And he was basically reluctantly forced to leave because he realized that he couldn't really continue his science there. And as you know, of course, there are also, uh, uh, fortunately in India, we had a secular democracy at the time. Yeah. Pakistan was a bit different. Yeah. And uh, as you know, the Ahmadiyya uh, sect was not regarded as, a, I mean, I think he must have faced not so much immediately, but later on in his life. This fact was also a kind of a sort of not accepting his identity in a way, you know, not getting a recognition from his home country about this identity. Okay, that's a separate issue. But I think the fact that he could not continue his science in his home country is what led him to, that was the, what led to the idea of ICTP, that he, to create an international hub where scientists working in their home country can come, somebody working in Pakistan can come and get refreshed and recharged for two, three months, and then return to their home country. Mm. Uh, this was his idea. Yeah. I, would you say that that would be one of his uh, legacies as well, Dr. Salams? I think that's one of his more important legacies, perhaps even more important than his contributions to physics. Uh, because of the difficulties that I have outlined, you know, it was his and Budinich's. We should also give uh, due credit to his uh, partner. Uh, I would say that it's it's a very important contribution because to create an international hub of this kind, where scientists from the you know at the time of the Iron Curtain the former Soviet Union, the scientists from Soviet Union and China and the United States could come together on a platform. Today, we have scientists from Palestine and Israel or Ukraine and Russia or, I mean, from countries who are not, countries maybe at a political, uh, a political uh, war with each other or differences. But uh, science, in a way, is a universal language. And of course, this is not true of all scientists. I mean, there are also, but I think science offers a way of having a dialogue. Uh, it provides a language for having a common platform, even when politically it looks impossible. Yes, it sure does. So what you mentioned um ictp has done some some good work recently and uh, we hope in the near future to to hear um, about the success of ictp what do you think would be um uh, your next priorities or what's next for ictp in your mind well, the, my first priority was to really consolidate what ictp already has and that's not an easy task for a, and i think i have largely succeeded in doing that i mean Consolidation meaning really making sure that the the work conditions are really world class. If uh, scientists are properly promoted, they have the right uh, that we are internationally competitive in our recruitment. We have additional funding 
all these things are, you know, uh, under the radar, uh, under the hood kind of uh, work that you have to do. And it's like in science, you know, there are some big shining uh, achievements that you see and that, that you publish in your paper, but there is a lot of grind and hard work that goes into it. And you have to do long, hard calculations and fix minus signs and write a program, you know, all this work, uh, there is an analog of that in, in an institution like ICTP. And when I took charge, I had the feeling that un unless ICTP is able to consolidate these aspects, you know, to really strengthen the pillars on which we are standing, the foundations, there is not much point in talking about expansion. Uh, and I feel that in the last three or four years, we have quite successfully achieved this. So that was uh, Dr. Atish Dabholkar, who is the current head or the director of International Abdus Salam International Center for Theoretical Physics in Trieste, Italy. Gentlemen, if I can ask you, Dr. Dabholkar was obviously giving a resume of um, uh, what ICTP has achieved: two hundred thousand scientists trained in the last, uh, you know, fifty-nine years, um, a, a unique institution of its kind. As well as uh, he shed some light on um, on the motivations of uh, Dr. Salam to have thought up something like this, a unique idea, still, a, you know, the only institution of its kind in the world. Uh, something he also mentioned very, very difficult, uh, would be very, very difficult to set up um, now. Um, so what, Reza, if, if I can ask you first, what does that tell you about Dr. Abdul Salam, his, his power of persuasion, his leadership, his shared energy. Again, so what we started off with at, at the age of 38 to do something, like in his mid-30s, as we've just heard, um, th there has to be something that he was deeply, deeply attached to. Um, the will was there. Um, and the fact that the regret, the sheer regret that he had that he wasn't able to do this in his country, which mm. he deeply, deeply loved, mm because that's where his roots were. This is where he grew up with. This is the country that he had uh, sympathy, empathy, and love for. Mm. But he wasn't able to do that. But still to go ahead in a different country with all the resources, I mean, to, to start an institute is not a small thing, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, we're talking about capital, we're talking about building, we're talking about the right connections. And <clears throat> that being run by the UNESCO today, by the government of Italy, it's... It's it's that commitment that you need to have, and especially in that age where you have so many different other responsibilities in life. Mm. I mean, he wasn't what would you call it like settled um, he, he or wasn't established. A, absolutely, he wasn't a Nobel <clears throat> uh, Prize winning scientist at that time, as Devolker, yeah. Professor Devolker mentioned. He was um, uh, he had a good reputation in science because of the work that he was doing. But he wasn't a Nobel Prize winning scientist and he wasn't, you know, he wasn't at the uh, at the stage in life yeah. where you, you, you know, as he said that uh, where the name won, is enough, where the name is enough, you yeah. won it and you've done the things. And now you talk about you think about, you know, doing other things. Yeah. And, and I think, I mean, this this uh, conviction and, and the success that you have, look, again, from a worldly point of view, is something that you can talk about. What are the chances? What are the circumstances that he was in? All of that stuff. But what what you started off with, you know, when when we started the program, 
two things, his conviction to his faith and his, his attachment to his faith um, and the legacy that he left behind. And I was just going through some of the work and some of the writings that he, uh, or the speeches that he gave, the address that he gave at different um, uh, organizations and different places. And, and this fact that he belonged to the Islamic faith, that he was a Muslim, this inspiration um, for his work coming from from his faith, it's it's spread everywhere, mm-hmm. which takes me back. I think we really summarized his 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 early life, but I remember that if you go through the literature of the community, it's it wasn't just he was just born and you know, went to school and everything started. The connection that he had or his father had with the community all the way back to the Promised Messiah, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, which also reminds me of a prophecy of the Promised Messiah on whom be peace, where, that states that the people from your community will achieve great success. Mm. And it, 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 that, that all combined for me, and when I've spoken to, to his son as well on different occasions, and other people who knew him, uh, the connection that he had with, with the caliphs of the time, all of that combined for me as a member of the community, for me as a, as a Muslim, as a religious person, I think that's what enabled him to do that, to have that conviction, to go ahead with it and stick to what he wanted to do all the way to the end until and unless that, that uh, institution was established. Sure. You know, I, I think there's a, another angle to this. Of course, um, people who knew Dr. Islam also knew the love that he had for Pakistan. Yeah. Um, you know, his loyalty to Pakistan um, was well known and well spoken about. In, I remember in the earlier days when he used to come to uh, London Mosque in Fuzzle, mm-hmm. Majid Fuzzle. But there's a flip side. Yes, he was emotional about Pakistan. And yes, there was the sadness that he wasn't able to um, open the institu- institutions that he wanted to in Pakistan. But then the flip side is that God had different plans for him. Yeah. yeah. That would have restricted the development that we have just spoken about and heard on the radio. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. 200,000 yeah. people. Pakistan would have been too limited for him. Mm. His capacity was more. So God creates obstacles and then opens doors where you are able to fulfill. Indeed. Which and, you and, don't and, understand and, at that time. Exactly. But in, in later days, he did understand it. Mm. And the fact that we are sitting here talking about him and talking to all of these people who owe th- some of the success and rewards that they have achieved because of the vision Dr. Salam had, um, and they're reaping the rewards for it. So God has always been there opening doors for him. Yeah. And if one was to look at his discoveries that he did make, the only um, credit that he gave was to the Holy Quran. Hmm. Absolutely. So there, there within itself, the fact that he gave credit to the Holy Quran was, was that he understood yeah. that everything that he has been blessed with and all the doors that have been opened for him have been the doing of God Almighty himself. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, point absolutely well made. You know, this is a truly uh, international institution and uh, and therefore his legacy uh, has become very international and as i mentioned earlier i think both uh, professor uh, deb holker as well as uh, 
his other protege in Pakistan, uh, Professor Pervez Hoodboy, um, who we shall talk about in the next hour as well, spoke about the importance of uh, of this institution and uh, and how because you know just just think about it, it requires a very different skill set to. Um, to start a, a greenfield project and and build an institution from the ground up, from what he was used to doing, which was science, he was essentially a scientist, yeah. and and yet he was able to uh, uh, to create this uh, this amazing institution, amazing international institution, um, to which Dr. Pervez Hoodboy actually said that um, he probably should have won a second a second Nobel Prize just because of the contribution that that institution makes um, and continues to make. Um, we will continue to talk about the legacy of uh, Dr. Abdus Salam. This is a live show. Please do call in at 0208-687-7878 should you like to contribute to this. We are now coming up to the 5 o'clock news. We will be back after the news break and continue to talk about Dr. Abdus Salam. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording. And lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of the Drive Time Show from Southland Studios of Voice of Islam. The time is 5 or 2 p.m. And this afternoon we are talking about Dr. Abdus Salam and the legacy of Dr. Abdus Salam. What did Dr. Abdus Salam bequeath to the generations, to posterity? Uh, what was he able to achieve? And we've talked about um, quite a few big achievements. So, so obviously, scientific achievements um, stand out on their own. But we want to focus on on the person himself. We want to focus on what, um, other than science, he left for posterity. And we've been talking in detail about this great institution that um, uh, not a lot of people in the world actually are aware of, the Abdus Salam International Center for Theoretical Physics in Trieste in Italy. Uh, which he set up back in 1964 uh, from the ground up. He uh, thought up the idea. Uh, he, through his sheer leadership, through his uh, persuasion skills, um, was able to align all the important um, stakeholders and set something up, which was uh, an institution dedicated to sharing knowledge with the global south or the developing world or the third world, whatever we want to. Uh, to call it, so that this um, uh, this scientific divide between the north and the south could be uh, bridged, and we've talked about uh, we've spoken to uh, Dr. Atish Dabolkar, who's the current director of ICTP as well. Um, and as I was mentioning before, we went <coughs> on to the news break. This contribution alone uh, is so significant. Two hundred thousand scientists have been able to um, to benefit from this institution in Trieste, something that Dr. Salam thought up <laughs> in his mid-30s and something that he was able to um, uh, to set up when he was only 38 years of age. So that shows, you know, the um, uh, that shows how important it was for him to give back and how early in his life he was thinking about that. And that time, also remember, he hadn't won the Nobel Prize. Uh, so while he was um, uh, an, a known scientist in the international community, he hasn't really accomplished uh, the Nobel achievement, which is uh, you know one of the greatest achievements in science, as um, as we all know. Right. Um, we we want to now talk about um, uh, his 
his other achievements, um, his his legacy in terms of the scholarships um, that he started, in terms of um, uh, other things he um, he gave, uh, he uh, other things he was able to give back and leave for posterity as well. And I'm very pleased that we are now joined by um, Mr. Ahmed Salam, who is um, Dr. Abdul Salam's son and um, um, is also currently the um, a partner in uh, AME Capital. Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you. A very warm welcome to the Drive Time Show. Wa alaikum for having me and inviting me. Thank you very much, Ahmed um, Salam, um, for joining us. Can I start uh, by asking you, to your mind, how important was the cause of sharing scientific <laughs> knowledge to the developing world, to Dr. Salam? I think it was mission critical, and I think it was without doubt. Um, as you gave, as you very rightly spoke about in your introduction, uh, it was his most enduring legacy, far more so than his science. And therefore, it even to this day has a huge significance and a relevance, this work that he did uh, in terms of uh, science and technology for the developing South. Um, it was, you know, science moves on, um, innovation, discoveries, etc., keep coming, and they keep changing, and they keep giving us a, a greater knowledge and greater understanding of the universe, etc. But the reality is that the work that my father did in terms of developing um, science and technology in the developing South is still his greatest single uh, legacy. Brother Ahmed, we, we speak about, I mean, we've mentioned it twice now that the the disappointment or the the sadness that he that he felt when he wasn't able to set up this institute in in the country of his birth um of course later on in hindsight you look at it god has has his plan and we as uh, humans have have our plan but at that moment you must have seen that you must have heard from him later on as well this love, this loyalty, this connection that he had with, with Pakistan, where did that come from? How important was it, or why was it so important to him? And that, and that, <clears throat> that loyalty never diminished throughout his life. Hmm. And it was always a, a central part of his life. And, of course, what we have to remember is that even after he resigned his formal role uh, in 1974, when the, uh, when the ordinance was passed against us, or the, the initial um, change of law, he did not change one iota of his loyalty to Pakistan. And even, even up, literally up until his, his last um, sort, of, um, sort of years, effectively, he was still being approached by the Pakistani government to give advice, to give guidance, and he never once turned them away. His love and loyalty for Pakistan, and again, that simple thing I've said so many times, where he retained his Pakistani nationality, even though you can imagine <coughs> traveling as much as he did, mm. to have to go to certain parts of the world, to go through a visa process when you're a Pakistani national, um, it was such a, uh, a difficult process. But he still went through all that for the sake of his beloved country, whereas he was offered Italian nationality, British nationality, Indian nationality, all these countries that have a much greater 
um, sort of uh, reputation and credibility globally hmm. than if he had travelled on their passports. It would have been much easier for him to do so. But he refused to do so, and he said, I will always retain my Pakistani passport. And that was, to, to, to his dying day, he remained a Pakistani national. Whatever the country did, it made no difference. Now, we spoke all of the achievements of his, but there's also certain awards that are now distributed, now given out in his name. Um, I want to speak to you and ask you specifically about the spirit of Abdus Salam Award. What, what is that? How did that start? What exactly? Well, that's, that's, that's something that's very close to my heart because it was my idea that actually if we look back at why the Centre in Trieste was created, and you've, you've already talked about the fact that the idea came to him at such a young age. I mean, he was probably 31 or 32 when he came up with the idea of this centre where developing world uh, physicists could come and they could mix and they could uh, meet with the best uh, scientists from the western uh, developed countries, learn from them, be re-energized by them and then go back to their own countries and spread that knowledge further. So if you think, I don't know how old you chaps are, but if you if, if, if you're 30 years old, you're typically at the beginning of your career, you're thinking about career progression. You're not thinking about how could you make uh, you know, the, the, the barrier between the first world and the third world in mm-hmm. science and technology uh, less obvious and, and, uh, and, and make it uh, a more, more, more level playing field. But the fact that he was thinking about that was just unbelievable that you know, he could come up with that, 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 that thinking. And so ICTP was very much created out of the passion that he, he exhibited to, to try and uh, break down this barrier between the first world and the third world, and the, 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 this is the centre in Trieste. And what I wanted to try and do was always remind all the academic staff and all the administrative staff together that ICTP did not come about out of an actual academic need. It came out of a need to break down the barriers between the first and the third world. And that was, as we said already, that's the real legacy of uh, Abdus Salam, if you look at it in its isolation. And so what I wanted to do was set up a prize, and we called it the Spirit of Salam, because the, in essence, ICTP came about because of the spirit of my father, not because of any needs, as I just said. And it's open to everybody across the institution. And you can nominate people online, and it's, it's all very, very well <coughs> set up and regulated. And it basically captures the spirit of somebody who goes out of their way, who goes beyond the call of their job and their duty, to try and help. So you can imagine, or if you can imagine, when, 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 when these students come to Trieste, typically they come from countries like North Korea, Vietnam, um, Pakistan, obviously, Libya, um, Morocco, etc. Yeah, countries which have extreme poverty, and they they come to Trieste, and they really don't know their way around. It's a foreign language, it's a foreign place, and so what I wanted to do is try and capture that essence. That if somebody comes there, and a member of staff goes out of their way to help them and look after them, and mentor them and take them under their wing and try and try and you know, help them and look after them, etc. I wanted to capture that spirit of my father, not an academic prize for someone's great academic achievement, but that spirit of Islam, which again stems back from that central message of Islam of serving humanity. There's a very long answer to your question. <laughs> I hope it made sense. Of course. Makes perfect sense, uh, <coughs> Brother Ahmed. Um, I want to also talk to you about 
the personality of uh, Dr. Abdus Salam. So, you know, to set up something uh, an institution, number one, to, to think up an institution like that in his mid-30s, to set it up at 38, uh, you know, that sh- tells uh, tells me a lot about his visionary leadership, his power of persuasion, and his sheer energy. Absolutely. Is Is that what you remember of him as well? Somebody said about my father, and I use this quote quite often, is that he had an amazing combination of curiosity and compassion. The curiosity led him to his scientific discoveries, but the compassion gave him that edge of thinking of, of humanity first and foremost. And that's, a, that's a, if not a unique combination, a very rare combination. And again, I come back to this point that here we are 27 years after his death, we're still talking about him. Next month, we're going to be celebrating with Imperial College, who are renaming the library, uh, the central main library at Imperial College after him. Other Nobel laureates have come and gone. You know, they've had their time in the limelight, but when they've died, people have forgotten about them. And yet, there's a unique man here in my father, who 27 years after his death, he's still being remembered, not by us as a community or, or, or people who are close to him, but by people independent, like the, you know, the governors of Imperial College, all the, the um, people in uh, the Trieste Centre, etc. All these independent people who just know him as a figure rather than, rather than having met him, are still commemorating his contribution. And English Heritage, of course, who a year ago put a plaque on his house you know, to commemorate him and commemorate his achievements. All these people are doing these things, and that, again, just, just really underscores what kind of amazing God-given personality mm-hmm. he had. Yes, and I was actually speaking uh, with Dr. Pervez Hudboy in Pakistan, who was a physicist and also somebody who worked a little bit um, with Dr. Salam as well. And yes. he actually mentioned to me that, uh, to his mind, I put the same question to him, that how significant was this achievement of setting up something like the ICTP from scratch? And and he said to me that, to his mind, he deserved two Nobel Prizes, one for science and the other just for setting this up for the scale of the opportunity it provides to budding scientists in the Global South. I, I think that's absolutely right. And he, he probably would have been eligible for the Peace Prize because this is exactly what the ICT was, was set up to try and do, to try and break down that barrier between the first and the third world, as I said. But he was never able to get it beyond that initial center in, uh, in, uh, in, in Trieste. And now, by the grace of Allah, we have the uh, center in Rwanda, or sister center in Rwanda. We have a sister center in uh, uh, Brazil. And we have one in Beijing as well. So, and there's talks of a number of sister centers to the ICTP now being set up. And I'm, I would think that the Nobel Committee would look seriously for the, at, at, at his achievements through a peace prize if he was around and with us today. So I think you're right. Well, Pervez is right. And, and Dr. Dabulkar, who is the current director of ICTP, actually uh, shared some numbers with me. And he said that 200,000 scientists, 200,000 scientists have so far benefited yeah. from ICTP. And ICTP next year celebrates its 60th um, anniversary. So that's going to be a huge event in itself. And all these 200,000 students who've passed through those doors owe that, that opportunity is, is, you know, to my father and you know, uh, Abdul Salam. And that's, that is a phenomenal legacy to leave behind, in addition 
to any physics work that he may have done in terms of uh, his, his, his grand unification theory. Um, brother, brother Amslam, I, I don't actually have a question, but it's just a thought that came to mind, and I would love to hear your view on it. That I know we are celebrating and, and we are talking about uh, the history of Dr. Abdul Salam, but you know the biggest questions in the world today and for decades, for the past centuries, in fact, is that people um, separate science and religion. Mm-hmm. They never, ever think... Uh, or they people just don't believe that science um, you either believe in science or you believe in religion and when I look at the life and the achievements of Dr. Abdeslam I think how he has proven both those factions wrong and how he has proven the fact that science and Islam are so intertwined that it's unbelievable that that um, progression um, um, that he achieved and the rewards that he achieved he directly um, uh, contributed to the success of his achievements to God Almighty, and he entered, and he, and he always believed and worked on the fact that science and and religion uh, are are intertwined uh, and, and, and moving forward. Well, actually, if you think of his core inspiration, it came from a very deep knowledge and understanding of the Holy Quran. Yes, and his whole work ethic was always built around. The, 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 the recitation of the Quran playing in the background. So it's always subconsciously going through his mind when he was sitting in his office at home or in his bedroom at home, the Holy Quran would always be playing in the background without fail. When he traveled, he'd have a, a, a Sony Walkman, which is the original cassette player, which is how you, you took, took um, sounds around with you in the, in, in the 70s and the 80s. He had one of the very first ones. And he would sit on the plane with his headphones on in the 70s and the 80s, listening to the Holy Quran again. Uh, this reminds me of an incident uh, of Dr. Uh, Imam Bashir Ahmed Rafiq, um, when he used to deliver his Friday sermons. Um, and uh, and uh, Dr. Abdul Salam used to make notes while the, the sermon used to be being delivered. And uh, Imam Rafiq actually asked him, do you like my sermon so much that you take notes? And, and uh, Dr. Salam replied, the fact of the matter is that I get flashes of scientific ideas like an electric current, so I jot them down right away. These ideas subsequently become bases for my theories, and if I don't write them instantly, chances I will lose them. Absolutely right. And Anambi uh, um, Rafiq was, was actually you know, sort of really quest for them when yes. he went to ask my father that because he thought, wow, I've said something so profound here that Professor Salam <laughs> is writing it down. And I'm, I'm, yeah, this is, this is the ultimate accolade that Professor Salam is writing down something I've said. Yeah. And of course, it was not, nothing was further from the truth. It was just my father had had a flash of brilliance. And actually, the other, the other wonderful story, of course, is that my father was quite a frequent visitor to Buckingham Palace. And he had a very good relationship with Her Majesty the Queen and an even bigger relationship with Prince Philip. And I, I can tell you a wonderful, very quick story about Prince Philip, but let me just finish his other story first. And that is the fact that at one of the lunches, he went in and he, he was at, at the lunch with Her Majesty the Queen, and an idea had come to him during the lunch. He didn't have a piece of paper with him, so he took his pen out and he scribbled something down on the napkin. At the end of the lunch, Her Majesty leaves first, the, you know, the, her dogs leave as well, etc. And my the guests then leave. My father then went back into the dining room and asked if he could have the napkin because he'd written something down and he had to have that napkin with whatever he'd written down. Um, and so they gave him the napkin and he was able to take it away and, uh, 
and, and, and bring it home and uh, you know, carry on with his, uh, his, his inspiration that had come to him during the lunch. Amazing. So it wasn't just a Mambier Rafiq. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was the Queen as well. Yeah, absolutely. It was the Queen as well. Yeah. There was the other story that you wanted to share as well. It, it, again, it's, it's, it's brilliant. So how did Ayub Khan get to hear about Professor Salam? Yeah. Because Ayub Khan had not... He was, he was unaware of this brilliant young Pakistani. Mm. And the person who introduced Ayub Khan so Ayub Khan, just to put it in context uh, for our listeners, sorry, was, yes. the, was the president of, uh, of Pakistan at the time. And one of the most enlightened, even though he's a military dictator and he's in a coup, his period as a benevolent dictator was a period of phenomenal economic growth yeah. and stability in Pakistan. So Pakistan was a, um, a, a real icon in terms of economic growth and you know, it, it, the glory days of Pakistan's history. And that's when my father was chief scientific advisor. But the person who introduced Ayub Khan to him was Prince Philip, because Prince Philip was the Chancellor of Cambridge University. He said, we've got this. So when Ayub Khan came on a state tour to the UK in 1960, uh, he met with Prince Philip, and uh, Prince Philip had said to him, we have this brilliant young Pakistani, have you ever heard of him? And Ayub Khan, President Ayub Khan said, no, never heard of him. So that was where the initial introduction <laughs> to... to you know, yeah, the usually it's the other way around. But yeah. Prince Philip, yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, thank you so very much. Uh, You're Mehmet very Salam. welcome. I hope really a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Take, Take care. Bye bye. So that was Hamid uh, uh, Salam, who is the son of uh, Dr. Abdul Salam and also currently a partner at EME Capital, talking to us, reminiscing about uh, some of his um, uh, memories from the time uh, that he spent with his father. Right. Um, we now want to move on to um, to another chapter within um, within Dr. Salam's life, a, a very important chapter, um, and something as we've been talking about, very important to his heart as well, which is the contributions that he was actually able able to make to Pakistan. Um, and despite uh, the efforts of uh, many of his detractors in Pakistan, he was still able to give back so much. To his um, to his country, he was um, as was mentioned by um, Ahmed Salam as well was the scientific chief scientific advisor to the Ministry of Science and Technology in Pakistan from 1960 to 1974, and at that time he played a major and influential role in the development of country's scientific infrastructure. He was able to restructure and reinvigorate Pakistan's Atomic Energy Commission. He established research laboratories all over the country. On the direction of uh, Dr. Salam, his protege Ishrat Hussain Usmani set up plutonium and uranium exploration committees throughout the country. Other institutions he founded in Pakistan are the Institute uh, of Physics at Gadi Azam University, the Karachi Nuclear Power Plant, Pakistan Institute of Nuclear Science and Technology, or PINSTEC, as it is known. This was a result of his long-held dream to establish a research institute in Pakistan, which he had advocated for uh, on many occasions, a research institute totally dedicated to theoretical physics. In 1961, he founded the Space and Upper Atmosphere Research Commission, or SUPARCO, and was, the res- and was responsible for the establishment of theoretical physics group. For context, this was a time when Russians who were much ahead of the Americans at that time, were only touching the edges of space. And NASA, again for context, was created only a few years earlier in 1958. So in 1961, Professor Salam sets up Suparco, the Space and Upper Research uh, Commission in Pakistan. Uh, 
The same year, Salam travels to United States, arranges the meeting for President Ayub Khan with Oppenheimer, no less, and signs a space cooperation agreement between Pakistan and the U.S. As a result, NASA started to build a space facility, a flight test center at Son Miani, a coastal town in Balochistan province. As a result of uh, those efforts. This is back in 1961, gentlemen. He um, also instituted the Abdul Salam Award, which is an award established to recognize high achievement and contributions in physical and natural sciences. Salam donated the money he had won from the Nobel Prize. It was endowed by his protégés um, Asghar Qadir, Riauzuddin and Fayazuddin in 1980 and was first awarded in 1981. As was mentioned by his son as well, he was a true patriot. Despite being an internationally renowned figure, he never gave up his Pakistani passport. Let's now hear from someone who knew him well and worked very closely with him as well uh, during the latter part of his life, Professor Pervez Hoodboy. I started uh, by asking him that while billions have been spent on higher education in Pakistan, there's not much to, to show for in, in terms of research. And this is what he said. Well, there's no relationship between how many buildings you build or, or how much equipment you import and what goes on in an individual's mind. Let's take uh, mathematics. Mathematics requires no equipment at all. Yeah, these days, okay, you could say you need a computer to connect with the internet, but everybody has that. Everybody has smartphones. And yet we are not smart in math. So it's got nothing at all to do with what equipment you have, how many universities you build, how many high-tech labs you have. Basically, science is a way of thinking and at its core is a critical thought and imagination. Now, when those qualities are not desired within a particular society, such as Saudi Arabia, I'd say, earlier, now things might be changing, it just doesn't matter how much money you pour into it. It's like then having a bucket without a bottom. And that's what happened in Pakistan. So as you say, we put in billions. And by the way, it was not billions of rupees. It was billions of dollars because this was just after 9-11. And the Americans said that the only way to get Pakistan from becoming a terrorist state, it already is one, but uh, to make it, to, to defang it, is to put money into education. Okay, that sounds great, but uh, you know, um, it depends on what that education is supposed to fulfill. If it does not produce thinking people, people who can use their own minds to evaluate, to assess and be informed, well then put in as much money as you like, it won't make one bit of difference. You mentioned desire or the lack of desire. Again, why, why do you think that is? Everybody talks about, at least at the government level, whichever the government comes in, they do talk about it. So why is, and, and everybody can understand the importance of science as well. I think there's, you know, there's very little debate uh, about what scientific uh, achievement can, uh, can bring to the country. So why that lack of desire? 
Well, I'd say there's a lot of desire to make use of products of science. Everybody wants smartphones. Everyone wants to be treated uh, using the latest medical equipment. There's CAT scan, there's PET scan, there's uh, MRI, you know, all that fancy stuff that uh, was science fiction. But uh, those are the fruits of science. When you come to learning science itself, then that requires freedom of thought, critical thinking, and that comes at a cost. The cost is then that your children, the ones that um, you bring up, both at home and in school, will start asking too many questions. And so in societies where it's, it is felt necessary that you hammer in an ideology, well, then you necessarily have to restrict the scope of thought of children. You have to then tell them, you cannot think outside of this particular box. If you do that, well, then, hmm, then uh, you will be transgressing. You might become a, you might even leave your faith. And that's something that um, society, so religious societies in particular cannot cope with. Dr. Abdus Salam, a Pakistani scientist, um, won the Nobel Prize in Physics. Uh, he was also able to set up a center in Trieste in Italy. Have Pakistani scientists over the years been able to take advantage of that center? Uh, well, that's a good question because there are lots of them there. And uh, I, I was there very recently, in fact, uh, last month. Um, well, they mostly come in the summers. That's the time when Trieste is extremely pleasant um, over the years. So the first time that I went to Trieste was uh, at Professor Salam's invitation, and this was 1978, the end of 1978. And uh, that uh, was my first real meeting with Professor Salam also. Although as a student at MIT, I first saw him in 1971. But, uh, okay, you're coming back to your question. There are lots of Pakistani scientists there, but do they take advantage of it? The answer is, by and large, no. It's because there's, okay, certainly there's a wonderful laboratory. There are excellent lectures. There's, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean laboratory, I meant library. The, ladder, the library is absolutely fantastic. The living uh, situation over there is, is just uh, beautiful. It's a tourist spot, remember. And yet, if I think about the, the 50 years that ICTP has been around, I'll say that 5% of Pakistani scientists actually used the ICTP as it should have been used. And 95% uh, did not. That's because of two reasons. One was, one is, remains so. One is that so few of us, us Pakistani scientists, are 
technically and uh, intellectually equipped to take advantage of the of of the environment that ICTP has to offer. And secondly, there's um, really a, a lack of um, motivation. So you see, you see visitors from other countries. Um, I'm excluding the Arab countries, but if you take South America, for example, uh, there are a lot of scientists from Mexico, from Argentina, Brazil, Ecuador, and so forth. And they're there. You can see them um, talking to each other physics. You can see them in the library. But Pakistanis will be mostly visiting the, the stores in, in Trieste. I once told Professor Salam this, but I was too junior at that time. And <laughs> he said, Bhai kya kare? <laughs> well, uh, so look, it's, it's, a, it's a matter of cultural attitude. And it's this attitude which builds science. Hmm. Okay, yeah, absolutely. And, and you can... You know, you can bring the horse to the water, you can't make it drink it. So I guess it's uh, probably that situation as well over there. I want to talk a little about, bit about um, uh, Dr. Salam himself now. So he was a scientist. And him setting up a center, immersing himself totally into establishing something um, from the ground would have taken a lot of effort Um and would have required a very different skill set as well as an administrator, one would imagine. What would you say about that? And what do you think that tells us about the person? So I should say that he should have gotten two Nobel Prizes. One for, of course, the weakened electromagnetic forces unification. The other for setting up the ICTP, which genuinely is an international institution. And you can see that there are scientists from all over the world over there. And thousands of them have visited and taken advantage of it. Now, I don't think that any other scientist in the world has uh, so profoundly affected the, the development of sciences in the developing world. And some countries have taken a lot of advantage of that. Others have taken little. But in terms of the skills that were needed to set it up. So back in the 1960s, let's remember that that was a time when uh, the world had uh, emerged from a very destructive war. However, there was still the clash between the United States and Soviet Union. This was a time when it was it was realized that scientists were a sort of unifying um, glue that 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 could hold together different peoples, and this is something that uh, Abdul Salam seized upon. He could 
from his own personal experiences, from his own isolation in Pakistan, intellectual isolation at that time, he uh, went about this task single-mindedly. And he went to, to government authorities. He went to the United Nations, to UNESCO, to the Italian government. And uh, his persuasive powers were certainly enormous. I don't think that uh, there's any other example of this in the world. Really? Yeah. How important, in your opinion, Dr. Perez, was setting up of a scientific base in Pakistan was to Dr. Salam? He tried his best, but uh, he, and, and certainly there were scientific institutions that he did succeed in setting up. So, Suparko. Okay, now I have to tell you, um, I first saw Salam when I was 12 years old, and this is way back in 1962. He had come to give a talk on, uh, on uh, rocketry. And this was at the Park American Cultural Center on Bandar Road in Karachi. And I was in the audience and uh, when he finished talking about rockets and how they could explore the upper atmosphere. Remember, there was a time that uh, man hadn't uh, uh, gone into space. This was before Yuri Gagarin. This was before even the first Sputnik. This was a time when the Americans were experimenting around with sounding rockets that were just touching the upper atmosphere. And so um, uh, Salam had, had accompanied Ayub Khan uh, to the United States. And there Eisenhower had uh, suggested to to Ayub Khan that uh, Pakistan could uh, take part in this. And Ayub Khan then summoned Salam. I don't know what year this was, it was probably 1960 something, 1960 probably, or uh, just after he was appointed scientific advisor to the president. So Salam took advantage of that and he established Suparko. He called in a bunch of people that he knew from earlier on in Pakistan and got them together. And that was the beginning of the Pakistan uh, Space and Upper Atmosphere Research Organization called Suparko. Well, uh, that's one organization that he founded, but the agriculture, there's a organization for agricultural research and he, although he was certainly not uh, from the biological sciences, he's from physics. Nevertheless, he saw how important this was to Pakistan and suggested to Ayub Khan, and that's how that took off. And also the Pakistan Atomic Energy Commission, which, although he did not found, he supported very strongly in many different ways its growth. Uh, he and his uh, protégés were uh, among the chairman of the PAEC, 
IH Usmani and then later Munir Ahmed Khan. Dr. Mabiz, to your mind then, what is, there is obviously a scientific legacy of Dr. Abdul Salam. Do you think there's there's another legacy of Dr. Abdul Salam as well, especially in the context of, uh, you know, uh, ICTP and other institutions that he could have founded? The legacy, uh, the positive part of that is that he showed that somebody can rise from uh, the local education system. So remember that he didn't go to the O-level, A-level branch of education. He was in a very humble school and taught by teachers who were, uh, well, they, they were actually... A, a prior to partition Hindu as well, he was taught by people who were very much uh, down to the ground. And yet, because of his sheer brilliance, the whatever he had in him, he could make it all the way up. And we know that uh, he became the, the youngest professor ever at Imperial College London. His PhD thesis got a got the Adams Prize. The sort of problems in physics that he that he worked upon were cutting edge. And this was just when he was a young man. So that's the legacy. That's the encouraging part for young Pakistanis that they can they can in principle make it to the very top. Well, but the other side of the legacy is the sad part that uh, Pakistan has not given him his due place. Pakistan discriminates against all religious minorities. And uh, the fact that we threw out the Hindus at partition ruined the Pakistani educational system because our universities were then staffed by second-raters who brought in then later third-raters. But the biggest prejudice today is against uh, the Ahmadis of Pakistan. They are discriminated against and uh, treated worse than uh, any other religious minority in Pakistan. So I think that's the very sad part of it. The fact that we cannot acknowledge Salam as the greatest Pakistani scientist who is uh, of of all times, I mean, ever since Pakistan came into existence. We can't mention him in the books, and people don't know about him. And sometimes it is very infuriating to me that second and third raters get uh, promoted at the official level and Salam is, is ignored. Now, let me give you an example. You know, there was at government college, Salam studied at government at government college, and then he taught at Punjab University. And uh, finally, to recognize that, and after a lot of pushing, there was the uh, Abdul Salam School for Mathematics, affiliated with government college. I've gone there many times, and <laughs> you don't see. Abdul Salam's name over there on a board, you don't see the official state stationery 
mentioning salam and there's no letter they, they, they don't dare to put up a letterhead okay now i'll tell you something else which uh, is even more hurtful and that's the national center for physics which basically salam student riyazuddin set up and for riyazuddin and i and then after riyazuddin died i alone uh, tried to get its name changed to the abdul salam the abdul salam center for physics instead of the national center for physics we met a stone wall and this went on until 2017 and i remember that it was salam's birthday i think or was it the day he died in november yeah november 26 i don't quite remember so jio television invited me to speak about salam and his impact on the on his impact on world science which i did and uh it's basically the stuff that i just told you it turned out that nawaz sharif was listening to that and uh he um, his personal secretary called me and said that uh, mia saab uh, has been listening to you can you put this down in the form of a proposal saying that the name of the national center for physics should be cho- should be changed to abdul salam center for physics and also add in that there should be five scholarships for studying physics in the united states which i did sent it to him 3 weeks later got approved and uh, well i learned that it had been approved because i saw it in the newspaper but then nothing happened what happened was that the those who run the national center for physics they simply tore up the instructions although they had been signed by the president of pakistan the prime minister of pakistan the minister for education and the minister for for uh, i think it was some some other minister four of them had signed and basically it was thrown out of the window so these things make me very sad your personal recollections of him you mentioned you met him first time in 19 well first i was uh, was at the american center but you visited him in trieste uh, in 1978 and you would you did meet him quite a few times afterwards you interviewed him as well um yeah what if i if and you've you've talked about this before but if i can ask you what what stands out if you look back at those interviews those interactions what what do you still remember starkly about those interactions i remember him as a very different person from when i uh, met him in 1978 uh well you know at at 12 i i saw him i asked a question from the audience that's not really meeting him but 1978 when i so when i met him in trieste and saw him interacting with people he was extremely vigorous he was full of energy and uh, 
I once asked him a physics question. It was a stupid one. And, and he shut me up. <laughs> but uh, that was, um, he, maybe he should have done it. Maybe he should have been a little gentler, but who knows. But the, the time that we got talking with each other, and I won't say we became friends because he, you know, he was so much older and more senior to me, and I was in awe of him. But uh, consider me to be his junior colleague. And we, we talked about a lot of things. And even, and we even wrote an essay together. And the, so we wrote that essay in 1985, 86. And then I met him. Um, then I, then when he came to Pakistan, I interviewed him. And he's still, and he had more gravitas, even more gravitas then. Uh, from a person who was incredibly dynamic and uh, had a huge amount of energy and interest in the world. My very last question, uh, Dr. Viz, actually would be, how do we keep this, this light lit? Uh, I suppose you're referring to the institutions in Pakistan. The one in Italy is doing fine, it's thriving. But Pakistan, yes, um, until there are major cultural changes, until we recognize that all peoples who live within Pakistan are citizens of Pakistan and have the same rights and should be given the same privileges and opportunities, until that time, I think Abdus Salam will be uh, his... He, we will not be able to use him as uh, as uh, the most brilliant mind that has lived within these borders. We will not be able to have a role model for our children. But, you know, people do find out. And I'd say that uh, even today, he remains the he remains a beacon of hope. He tells us that you can do it. You can. It's fighting for it. It's uh, making use of the gift that nature has given to us. And uh, Salam's legacy is not going to go away. As long as there's Pakistan, Salam will not be forgotten. So that was uh, Dr. Parvez Hoodboy, who um, had the opportunity of um, working with uh, Dr. Abdul Salam, uh, as well as meeting him uh, many times. And he was talking to us about uh, both those interactions, as well as uh, the personality of Dr. Salam, as well as his contributions, uh, both in the world of science in general, as well as to Pakistan uh, in particular. Moving on to the last area we want to talk about in terms of um, the personality of Dr. Salam, and that is his devotion to to Quran, his devotion to Islam. He was a, he was a devout Muslim, and despite the fact that he was a towering scientist of the 20th century, he was brought up by a profoundly religious father, and hence his father's personality was actually imprinted on him. His family had a rich tradition of scholarship, learning, and piety. 
<clears throat> and as was the custom, he learned the reading of the Holy Quran from his mother. He was well versed in Arabic. Uh, his father used to recite verses, tales, and um, uh, um, and the Holy Quran to him. From his early childhood, childhood, he offered five daily prayers. In the pocket of his jacket, he used to carry a small copy of the Holy Quran. At his home in Patni, while he was engrossed in his research, he used to listen to recitation of the Holy Quran in the background as well. In an interview for The New Scientist uh, in 1976, Dr. Abdul Salam said, Every human being needs religion, as junk has no... Uh, no, fa- as as uh, as this deeper religious feeling is one of the primary urges of mankind. In his article "Science and Religion," Professor Salam wrote, "Einstein was born into an Abrahamic faith. In his own view, he was deeply religious. Now, the sense of wonder leads most scientists to a superior being, as Einstein affectionately called the deity, a superior intelligence, the Lord of all creation, and the natural law." And in the same interview to the new scientist, Dr. Salam also said that we are trying to discover what the Lord thought. Of course, we miserably fail most of the time. But sometimes there is greater satisfaction in seeing a little bit of truth, unquote. Imam Reza, your thoughts? I have. Uh, I actually came across some of these uh, quotes as well, which uh, two of them I would like to mention before we conclude. Sure. One was from 1984, at the UNESCO house in Paris. And um, again, he said that, let me say at the outset that I am both a believer as well as a practicing Muslim. I am a Muslim because I believe in the spiritual message of the Holy Quran. As a scientist, the Quran speaks to me in that it emphasizes a reflection on the laws of nature with examples drawn from cosmology, physics, biology, and medicine, all as signs for all men, says the Quran. Can they not look up to the clouds how they are created and to the heaven how it is upraised and the mountains how they are rooted and to the earth how it is outspread? And he gave, you know, a whole lecture on on this topic. The second one that uh, I want to quote here is uh, from 1987, and this is uh, in Kuwait at, at 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 an address. And the question of... And again, so when we speak about this this pain and the agony that he had while he wasn't able to set up that institute in Pakistan, it wasn't just about Pakistan. It was also about the Muslim nations, yeah. the Islamic countries yes. as a whole in general. So the question, or he says that, why am I so passionately advocating our engaging in the enterprises of science and of creating scientific knowledge? This is not just because Allah has endowed us with the urge to know. This is not just because in the conditions of today, this knowledge is power and science and application. The major instrument of material progress progress and meaningful uh, defense. It is also that as self-respecting members of the international world community, we must discharge our responsibility towards and pay back our debt for the benefits we, we derive from the research stock of contempt for us unspoken but certainly there of those who create knowledge and then he gave an example of a nobel prize winner in physics from a european country who said to him some years ago that do you really think we have an obligation to succor aid feed and keep alive those nations who have never created or added an iota to man's stock of knowledge and he says that as i have emphasized science is important because of the underlying understanding it provides of the world around us of the immutable laws of allah's design it is important because of the material benefits and strength and defense and its discoveries can give us it is important because of its universality 
it could be a vehicle of cooperation for all mankind and in particular for the Islamic nations. We owe a debt to international science, which in all self-respect we must discharge. So people of integrity, a man of principles, of morality, of sticking to his faith, regardless in which, in which part of his life he was. You mentioned from, from his very early childhood all the way up until the very end, and the fact that um, th- this pain that he had throughout for his country, for his fellow people, for Muslim nations. And it's not just he sat there and had pain for it and, and talked about it. No, he actively engaged. He went after those countries. He offered them the help that they needed. But unfortunately, I saw an interview as well where um, he wanted to set up these organizations, these institutions in the Middle East, for example. But mm. they were not interested in, in, in science. They were more into technology, more into finance and all yeah. these things. But that's the trend that we see in the world, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. As um, Dr. Pervez was also saying that uh, we all like to have the latest iPhone, we all yeah. like to drive the the latest car, but uh, we don't know how that is created or built, and we have no interest uh, in that, unfortunately, in the Muslim world. And that is why, unfortunately, the Muslim world is uh, suffering as well. Uh, let me conclude today's show by um, quoting from the acceptance speech that Dr. Salam made uh, when he got his Nobel Prize in Physics. He stated the following verse from the Holy Quran and then stated, the verse of the Holy Quran is from chapter uh, 67, it's verses uh, 3 and 4. And I quote, Thou seest not in the creation of the all-merciful any imperfection. Return thy gaze, seest thou any fisher? Then return thy gaze again and again. Thy gaze comes back to thee, dazzled of airy. Once again, chapter 67, verses 3 and 4. And Dr. Salah mentioned that this, in effect, is the faith of all physicists. The deeper we seek, the more is our wonder, and the more is our dazzlement, is the dazzlement of our gaze. Ladies and gentlemen, that was the show um, this afternoon about the legacy of Dr. Abdul Salam. We've touched many different aspects um, of his personality, um, but just to sum up, his biggest legacy was the institutions he created, um, as well as um, the the message that he left for all of us to reflect on the Holy Quran. Thank you very much for joining us. You've been listening to The Drive Time Show on the legacy of Dr. Abdul Salam from Dani Azia, Imam Raza Ahmed, and um, Brother Kayum. We will be back next Friday. Until then, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you.